0: back for another exciting episode of Me and Mr. 80s. I'm Nick, the me part, and here is Mr. 80s. Hi, this is Daryl. And today, our
1: topic is cult artists. Not artists who have started their own cult, but... And this is where it gets interesting. I think we're going to actually spend a little bit of time here talking about this, how to define a cult artist. Because how I have defined it is that it is an artist whose longevity maybe has outpaced or outlasted their chart performance. Or an artist who has had uh, a lot of influence on other artists. Mm Mm-hmm. Or sometimes
0: it could be both. That's
1: kind of my working definition.
0: And I think my uh, my concept of that is pretty much similar in the uh, the longevity. Maybe uh, an artist that may have had success or have been known at one point but has lasted beyond that limited amount of success or is maybe known for something but has gone beyond where people may have known them from. And just to you know, kind of take it, <clears throat> play out the string a little bit
1: farther and draw a finer point on it, I think there are a lot of people who would say that David Bowie is a cult artist, and I would say absolutely not because he has had way too much commercial success and way too much widespread recognition. Mm-hmm. So you would agree with that? Yes, yes I would. And I actually think a great place to start... Unless you had another idea, nope. go for it. Is a band that you actually know a lot more about than I do. And that is a group called Big Star. <laughs> and to me, um, they're just one of those impenetrable groups that I have never been able to really get into. And yet they're cited as an inspiration by virtually every indie rock band to come out of the last 25 or 30 years.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know how they knew about them. I mean, to me, the reason I knew about them was, hey, the middle nineties again. Uh, they reunited with the surviving members and pulled in the members of the, pos- posies, the posies to do a one-off album and uh, live performance with an album that got released out of it, which I loved. I just thought they were awesome. And from there, then I went back and listened to their previous albums. But uh, I mean, I, I you know, I, I don't know how you'd know of them when they came out in the 70s because apparently they didn't seem to get much in the way of critical acclaim. I, I I mean I can't yeah I can't really figure it out. I mean were they
1: power pop? Were they oh, yeah, were they absolutely. Co- were they college rock before college rock had a name? It just seems like any time that you hear somebody try to describe Big Star they always are issuing these contradictory statements. They're always talking about how pop it is, but then they'll turn right around and talk about how Intellectual it is or how hard it is to really get into. Uh, They put out three albums in their career. Yes. Uh, The first one was called Big Star. Yes. Uh, The second one is
0: number one record.
1: And then the third one is either called Third or Sister Lovers, depending on I don't know what. And apparently there was actually a lot of evolution from the first to the third albums. And so the way they sound on the third album is not necessarily how they sound on the first uh the guy who gets most of the credit for being the main creative force <laughs> is Alex Chilton, but apparently they were a democratic songwriting unit, much like the Beatles, from what I understand. It's not like he wrote all the
0: tracks right well there's the the member that died uh before the reunion happened uh jody jody something jody watley no. <laughs> He's looking for a new grave. Yeah, well, I was going to hope maybe that they uh, they do have the, uh, the album that I knew was Columbia Live at Missouri. And the reason that uh, that live performance and album happened in like 94, 95 was all because of a college radio uh, station that wanted to get them to reunite. And, you know, Alex... Alex Chilton was a member of the Box Tops.
1: Right. Which was the letter was The Letter,
0: huge... which which is a song that people probably think they don't know. Go find it and listen to it and you'll go,
1: Oh that.
0: You've heard it. Yeah. Well I, we, we don't have to sing it, but my baby just wrote me a letter. Mm-hmm. That's that's him. And as far as I know, he wrote that. Yes, he did. And And he was actually, I guess, pretty young when that came out and oh. he still sings like he's fifty two. Yeah, I think he, he was only like 14 or 15 when he was the lead singer for that band. And he's band. got this ridiculously deep voice. Yeah. And he's got a great voice. But he was, as we uh, referenced Sid Barrett in the last uh, podcast, he's almost Sid Barrett in his uh, weirdness and... Reclusiveness? Uh, reclusiveness. And, yeah, he. he that's why I, I think no one really believe I think... That may have been as much of a reason why people loved this guy, uh, the big star, as you know they did write really great pop songs. They did. I mean, you know, you can listen to it and hear great pop songs, but they didn't get a big, they didn't get a big uh, buzz at the time, and so over that time you kind of had that growing legend i mean here's this amazing pop band and here's this troubled and artistic kind (laughs) of lead singer very you know brian wilson and his creative genius and i think you know maybe they kind of built up the the image of what they were and so i I was actually really impressed that when they actually got together to record the live album well they were very close suck (laughs) They're very closely associated with The
1: Replacements because uh, Paul Westerberg was one of the, the early... Uh, champions. The early champions, and, and even you know on, on the Please to Meet exactly. Me album, had a song called Alex Chilton, which is a, it's an excellent song, but yes. actually wrote a song about Alex Chilton entitled it that. And one thing I've always wondered is, as all of these bands started coming out and talking about how Big Star influenced them, I wonder how much of it was received that really they picked up on it from Westerberg. I wonder how much of it was really independent discovery and how much of it was either, oh, Westerberg says they're cool, so they must be, or, oh, Westerberg says they're cool, let me check them out. I mean, I guess it's neither here nor there. But I just, I think, you know, what you're getting at with, yes, they're solid songs. Plus the lead singer seems a little weird that maybe that's what kind of created this
0: perfect storm mm-hmm. where they became this larger than life. Yeah. Yeah. But in deference to all that, I do want to say, you know, they, you can get uh, number one record. Oh, I'm sorry. Number one record is the first album okay. and Radio City is okay. the second album. They're currently, if you find them on a CD, they're released together. So they were released separately back when they actually came out. Now they're both together. And they have the, the wow, really good songs. Uh, Ballad of El Gudo, uh, In the Street, 13, Don't Lie to Me, uh, When My Baby's Beside Me. I mean, uh, half of those songs are also on the Live Reunion album. Well, based on your
1: knowledge of 90s rock, and you know, that's really when the whole indie alternative thing kind of really crystallized. I mean, are there are there bands from that era that you hear, that you can hear big star influence that you can maybe toss out?
0: You know what? Not really. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just... The, uh, the Posies, having, you know, once they got together to do the reunion, I listened to the albums before that, and I would think you would almost more categorize them as Beatlesque than Big Star esque, yeah. The, and it's the, kind of tough to t- say what what the difference between being Beatlesque, as we've talked about in previous podcasts, is is more of just a you know a pop sensibility than it is anything else. And who's to say whether that pop sensibility was you know was influenced by the Beatles or Big Star or a million other pop bands? I, I don't know that I really hear. Um, Jody Stevens is the other member. I just remembered his name. Uh, he's the one that died, but he wrote, or actually, wait a minute. That doesn't sound right at all. Wow. <laughs> You're I'm, seeing how the sausages are
1: made, folks. <laughs> oh,
0: Chris Bell. That's the one that, that's the one that died. And I think actually Jody Stevens might've been one of the Posey members. <laughs> Isn't Chris Bell the uh, one that kind of just, uh, I, Kind of took over the creative reins for third sister lovers i the the what I know about third sister is that they couldn't pull it together I mean for whatever it was it, I think what was released as third sister or was third was what someone put together from what they didn't finish, yeah and so. Was it Chris Bell? Um, maybe being too artistic. Uh, he had, he did end up releasing a solo album that I never heard. But uh, and he, I know that was that happened after Third Star mm-hmm. my Sister, and you know Alex Chilton being. You know, wild, reclusive artiste. Uh, I, I don't know what caused the, the them to not complete the album, but something yeah, something went wrong. Shelton is no <laughs> longer with
1: us either, but he strikes me as but one of
0: guys. But he actually died pretty recently. He did. Though. He strikes me as one of those
1: guys that, uh, you know, was m- maybe famous once. I think he actually could live off the royalties from the letter. Yeah. Uh, he just strikes me as a guy that was living in a log cabin somewhere doing, like, chainsaw carvings and telling kids to stay off his lawn. I mean, that really, that just seemed to be kind of his vibe. So I don't want to belabor the big star point, but I just thought that was a good place to kind of start because that is one of those, uh, one of those bands that they get cited a lot, a lot, for being an influence. And they did absolutely nothing, chart-wise. Right. Um and it is kind of a mystery how they got back into the into the consciousness. I don't know if it was all Westerberg's doing, or if there was more to it than that. And if you know, if if people do know the story behind that, by all means, let us know. You know, shoot us an email at Mister Eighties at rocketmail.com or post something on our wall on Facebook, Mister Eighties.
0: And I love uh, back of my car. From uh, I think it was from the first album, but yeah, that, that's a wonderful song. But you know, so if I kind of like pop I kinda, music, go for it. Uh,
1: yes, if you like pop music, go go for it. Says Nick. So I kind of hijacked the intro.
0: So now you can uh, you can take us where you'd like to take us. All right. Well, I'll take us to uh, someone that I know you know something about, Henry Rollins. Yes, and. I think he had a, he qualifies as a cult artist, even though I think he's had success obviously with black flag and even, you know, solo artists. But I think, you know, he's always kind of been an interesting figure. I mean, whether it's spoken words, whether it's his IFC, uh, talk show, you know, weird cameos in movies, uh, I just think he's he's a cult figure, despite the fact that he might have have a little more success than maybe some cult figures might would you say
1: yeah, in fact, I think he's really he's a good choice um for a number of reasons because of of his his visibility and because of what he almost means as a symbol <laughs> um and yet at the same token, he is one of those guys that he almost seems like more than the sum of his parts because when you look at his resume um you know, Black Flag uh, was Greg Ginn's baby. I mean Greg Ginn wrote every note and wrote every word. Uh, and the Rollins band had some you know minor success during the you know, the alt rock explosion <laughs> in the early nineties.
0: Liar is a great video, find
1: that. <laughs> But he's really more well-known for being a guy who looks like a scary thug, but who is actually an articulate, sensitive guy. Yeah. And he's also been able to do those, I mean, I mean, for crying out loud, I mean, he played a cop in a studio picture starring Charlie Sheen and was still <laughs> able to maintain his indie cred.
0: Yeah. You've got to be impressed with
1: that. And uh, he's always been kind of a puzzle to me because... When I think of Henry Rollins, I think of a guy that I like. I think of a guy that I respect. And yet, if somebody asked me why, I'd, it would be hard for me to really articulate why. I, you know, you don't know much about the guy's personal life. He's actually a, a really private individual,
0: which is odd considering all the books he's you know written and all this spoken conf- word and how tours confessional and stuff. Confessional, his spoken word stuff is. Yeah. but it also, having read uh, a couple of the books and stuff, is, it's almost confessional as an emotion rather than confessional as an actual event.
1: That's exactly what I was going to say. He writes a lot about his feelings, but really doesn't tell you at all what made him feel that way. Yes,
0: which is odd because sometimes he has some really creepy-ass feelings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: And I actually, uh, I'm name-dropping my proxy here. I actually know someone who got a chance to meet Rollins and you know, said he was a... Uh, delightful human being so that's that's good to hear because he seems like he would be but then he also seems like maybe he wouldn't be he's one of those (laughs) guys you really don't know you know yeah he he seems so affable and so uh, just that he kind of knows enough about how the world works that nothing's gonna surprise him but at the same token he also seems like he could be
0: ferocious so well, you, you yeah, just, I mean he has he has a gigantic sun on his back, tattooed there. I mean he's he's uh, and his neck is wider than his head. Oh yeah. Oh, and he has that black flag tattoo on his neck too, isn't he? Yeah. I I I can name drop the fact that I uh, I met his uh, uh, guitar or his bass player, <laughs> who was a really nice guy. I was the one of the first things I was working at backstage at a uh, amphitheater. In Ohio and it was it was my first job working backstage and I was just playing at a second stage backstage and I was just supposed to you know help out whatever artists were showing up there and soul coughing was playing and his bass player I was basically sitting on a park bench waiting for someone to say they needed help doing something so you know I need to be carted around. I had a golf cart to drive him around or all sorts of stuff. And he just came down, sat right by me and I knew who he was because (laughs) I've seen the videos and I've watched them perform. So I knew, uh, that he was Rollins' bass player And, and he just sat down there and said, Hey, how's it going? And you know, I, I said, "Oh, do you need something?" And he's like, "No, oh, I'm good. I'm just here to see Soul Coughing. So we were sitting by the side of the stage watching Soul Coughing together, and you know, then he's like, uh, right towards the end of the thing, he just said, "I gotta go. I, I, we're we're playing next." <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, he's just totally, you know, casual and impressively nice. I mean, you just sort of, again, you you look at him and his band. I mean, they they just seem like they could be ferocious assholes but you know he comes you know Henry Rollins comes off as affable and so did his bass player
1: yeah so it's an interesting choice he's not really a classic uh,
0: he's not a cult artist in the classic sense but I think he definitely Uh, do you did you listen to him when he was in black flag I mean, I knew you. you, you know, I know you had the uh, spoken word get on the get on the bus thing because mm-hmm. I borrowed it from you. <laughs> yeah, which was excellent.
1: Uh, the only Black Flag stuff that I'm familiar with uh, is you know the stuff from like the Damaged era, uh, TV Party, yeah, uh, the stuff that anybody would would know. Uh, from from what I understand, uh, they they kind of were moving more toward metal
0: than uh, than punk. There in the in the later well, days, I, I was going to make a reference because I'm going to make a reference later to Bob Mould. Mm-hmm. But to me, I always thought that uh, Black Flag was taking punk towards metal, where Husker Du took metal towards pop, or to punk towards pop. Mm-hmm. So I, I just thought it was very interesting that they were both in that same era. You know, they were both taking punk in a completely different direction than where it had started out for both of them. Because I think both of them, you know, uh, Husker Du's early uh, albums, like first two and a half albums, were really more of a loud, hard, fast punk. And, you know, Black Flag was more of the loud, hard, fast punk. And then, you know, one goes... One goes metal and one goes pop. Right, and it's very very interesting. I wonder what. Oh, it just goes off. Okay, um, very odd uh, direction for both of them to take at the same time. I wondered, you know, what moved each in that direction. I assume for Black Flag, it was Greg, whose influence, you know, was since he was the head of that band. I yeah. guess that's where he wanted to go with it. And having listened to. Uh, more of the, uh, I didn't know that apparently they had a three-year stint where they were fighting with uh, their label, Capricorn, so they weren't allowed to release albums. Because I always wondered, uh, there's a point there between like, like 94 and 96 where they released like six albums. This is Rollins Band or? Uh, Black Flag. Okay. And the reason was because they were working on stuff, but they couldn't release anything because with that battle, they couldn't release anything under their own name, so once they finally cleared up the legal trouble, then they just started throwing out albums, mm-hmm. and that was My War, uh, sli- Slide It In or Slip It In, mm-hmm. um, Loose Nut Live '84, and so I haven't had a chance to go and listen to those. I was like, that's uh, some really good stuff because I was you know I, I listened to Damaged and I thoroughly enjoyed that album, but. Some of the other stuff which I I I read haven't hasn't been as reviewed as well. They sort of say they when they started trying to go metal they kind of lost a little. I I thought they were
1: really good. That's what yeah I've read the same things and you wonder how much of that is just because uh, the people that are doing the reviewing wanted punk liked punk and didn't really like the idea of a punk indie band embracing those kind of more traditional blues based metal tropes i wonder how much that had to do with it Hmm.
0: i wonder because you know if when husker do makes that change towards pop they're more accepted because it's a more acceptable format and maybe you know that metal punk is a little too much for people and so they're like eh never mind yeah but i still remember when uh when husker do put out
1: was candy apple gray was that the first major label album uh, which I always love that title because it makes no flipping sense. <laughs> I would love to know what it's supposed to mean. Good Can- candy Apple Gray. Uh, th- there were still a lot of people that said, oh, you know, Husker Du making their major label move. I mean, this was back when labels were very you know, monolithic when labels were a big deal. I think a lot of young people today don't really understand what a label meant. I mean, if oh, yeah. if you weren't on a label, you weren't being heard. And so to have these bands like Black Flag, like Husker Do, who I believe were both on SST, mm-hmm. which was a California-based indie label, uh, you know, having an indie label was not an easy thing back then. And so the fact that there were even indie labels for these bands to be on was a big deal. Yeah. And so the the fans really felt like they they owned them, and when a band would it would happen every now and again, where a band would make a jump to a major. I mean, it was pretty nasty, pretty nasty stuff when that happened, and, and they had that backlash where people were like, you know, "Here they go! You know, they can afford to record in a real studio now, not in some guy's basement. They can afford a real producer. They've got a budget, and." So it, it kind of took a while. I think that uh, really people didn't start accepting them. This is Husker Du, we're talking about, as a legitimate pop rock band until Warehouse came out, and then it was all over.
0: Yeah. Warehouse comes out, and <laughs> then they're done. Yeah, and definitely, uh, I think that was a good place for them to stop, too. Uh, I mean, it's a good album but it's also so totally
1: different though
0: yeah it's definitely uh a pop record i mean if you go and listen to zen arcade uh, and then listen to warehouse you're like oh that that's the same band <laughs> i mean you know it's it's so much more glossy so much more well produced and it's it came to an end i mean you know uh uh, well, we'll, 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 well talk we talk more as, about we, Bob. We might as well get into Bob, okay? Because well, we're talking about we were talking about Black Flag, we were talking
1: about Husker Du. They were label mates. One went metal, one went pop. Bob Mould was basically the figurehead and main creative force. Although Grant Hart would not appreciate me saying that, <laughs> Bob Mould was the main creative force behind Husker Du. So if if, if Bob Mould is on your list of cult artists, we might as well talk about him now. Yeah. So he he's.
0: Definitely a a influential figure, uh, because of apparently emo. I, I did not know they were emo godfathers, but they were definitely punk godfathers, mm-hmm. and they definitely uh, did a, a great move. Kind of like the replacements, although I don't think the replacements really got much notice. It seemed. Uh, for for what they were doing at the time, but again, you know, uh, another uh, one of those early punk bands who went from a, a, a loud, fast punk and started moving into a pop era. But I think I because never, the replacements made their pop
1: move while they were still on an indie label, they took a lot less shit <laughs> when they signed with a major because they already pretty much had changed their sound
0: yeah and uh i remember well i, I, <laughs> I, I don 't mean to to go off on a tangent, but by uh, don 't tell a soul from uh replacements i think was their first uh, major label album no um, I can't or was that rem- just the end of the
1: <laughs> i can 't remember if it was if if Tim was the first or the last i can 't remember if Tim was the first major or the last indie um, or if Please to Meet Me" was the first major, I, I'm thinking that Please to Meet Me" was the first major label album. Don't tell a
0: soul. I knew that was uh, the end. I mean, that was because then there was all shook down. Which I love came, all shook down came
1: after "Don't Tell a Soul." Yes, that but was. But
0: was basically a
1: Westerberg solo, solo album under the name Replacements. Right. Right. So, yeah,
0: don't don't tell a soul was actually pretty deep into their major label run. Okay. Well, that's good. Well, uh. I just wanted to say that All Shook Down is a great album that you should check out. It has tons <laughs> of really great songs, and a uh, um, a duet with Jeanette Napolitano from.
1: Is that the Four nine blondes?
0: No, Concrete Concrete Blonde. Blonde. Concrete <laughs> Blonde. Yeah, and that was uh, my little problem. But th- that whole album, th- there was actually I remember seeing a video for. Uh, happy town on 120 minutes. And even that, that was why I didn't, uh, when I read later that that was pretty much a Westerberg solo album, it's odd because the rest of the, uh, rest of the band like Tommy Stinson and stuff are in that video. Hmm. Once again, we're not but, talking yes. about Bob mold, <laughs> but Bob mold, you know, I, I he's a cold figure, but he's also, I thought he was a terrific influence on me. I, uh, loved his Husker do stuff. Uh, I, a matter of fact, I bought Zen Arcade when I was with you. We bought it at uh, Title Changer. Yes, I remember that. <laughs> and that was one of those things where I just felt I kept seeing it come up as, oh, this is such a great album, you know, uh, uh, kind of a Hendrix-influenced guitar and, you know, great pop rock and you just, you know, really one of the greatest albums ever. It was making a lot of best of the 80s lists at that time and so i just had to buy it and i'm really glad i did cuz i love the album <laughs> but it didn't end up being your favorite husker du record wasn't that uh new day rising wow um i would say over time i would say overall i husker du would be my favorite album even though i i think that there are some terrific songs on New Day Rising. Mm -hmm. Um, So that arcade does win out? Yeah. I I hate to be, you know, going along with everybody else. Well, we we dissed the shit out of Bitches Brew in the last episode, (laughs) so you can have this one. Uh, But even, uh, we mentioned uh, Candy Apple Grey uh, has a phenomenal song called uh, Too Far Down, which going by the lyrics kind of sounds like um, like he's writing about wanting to kill himself because he's so depressed. Mm-hmm. And again, he's openly gay, so I, I, you know, I never, I never try and read too much into his lyrics. But I always wonder, you know, is it teen angst that they're writing about, or could it be some sort of, you know, since he, I don't think he was out at the time of that no, he was record, not. you know. Is that a, uh, a pain of hiding something like that? But it's a really, it's a sad and depressing song, but it's phenomenally good. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, and he's known more for the, the big buzzing guitar and the very, you know, uh, heavy driven sound, which is all over something like a Zen Arcade, but he really does a beautiful understated song.
1: Have you also, uh, have you gotten into any of his electronica stuff that he's done as a solo artist <laughs> in recent years? Actually, no.
0: Uh, I'd like to, but it, it it from what little I've heard, I, I was just sort of like, I, I can't I can't follow you everywhere. Apparently, <laughs> yeah. Well, that happens sometimes. <laughs> but I love Sugar. I thought they did uh, just some amazing pop rock songs. His band um, after Husker Du that was his you know his first band apparently there was one that i didn't pay attention to called nova mob i've Missed heard the name but i didn't know it was him so i read something that he was referenced as being in that and i didn't know that. and he also has solo albums where he did um uh, i was a m- little more singer songwriter-esque than it was uh big buzzy guitars i remember one was called black sheets of rain Black sheets of rains and I, uh
1: workbook I always thought The Black Sheets of Rain was a great album title. Yeah. Again, I have no idea what it
0: means, but I just think it sounds cool. Yes, he, he's good at sounding cool. <laughs> um, Helpless um, and my favorite Things. Helpless was from Copper Blue for Sugar, and my favorite thing was from File Under Easy Listening are both phenomenally catchy rock songs. Just terrific. Although I'd love, uh, did I mention this before? I think we mentioned, but he, uh, in between all of this a- after, uh, sugar dies and he starts doing solo records and then he starts going into a electronica dance stuff. He, in 1999 wrote for WCW. Yes. Because he loved professional wrestling, apparently. Yes, I was aware of this. He was <laughs> he was a consultant for big time championship wrestling. Yeah, and that I I, I find that really interesting, just because that's got to be a gay thing. Well, I, I, <laughs> I do wonder about that because you know you're you know joining a, a an organization which has always been you know, picked on for being homoerotic, and you're gay. I mean, that's just like, I, that, that almost seems uh, too obvious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the same thing when I heard that. I'm like, oh, Bob. But, but I've never heard him talk about it, so I'd love to just know, you know, I, I, I read later that it was something that he did because he was he loved professional wrestling. But that is that is a truly odd thing to go from legendary guitarist for a major punk rock band to pro wrestling. But I would, hey, I would agree know, with him. I, I got to say that he's, he, he's always great at doing um, what he wants to. And even though if it's electronica, I sometimes don't follow along, I still appreciate that he goes out. Another guy that does whatever he
1: wants to. This is a perfect segue Probably my top choice for biggest cult artist of all time is Lou Reed. <laughs> Slash The Velvet Underground. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the big thing about The Velvet Underground was, what, 25 people bought their debut album, but every single one of them that did started their own band. So yeah. when you talk about influence, uh, The Velvet Underground has got that in spades. I think their first record came out in the uh, in the later... 60s Mm -hmm. and was unlike anything that had been heard at the time and of course he's always kind of hung his hat on his street poetry his very bleak lyrics that take on subject matter that was not normally (laughs) Not normally dealt with in rock songs, but I just think that uh, you know just Lou Reed as a even as a solo artist uh, Has had the kind of career that we're just not ever gonna see again I mean, the guy has been on a major label ever since the Velvets. He he never had to deal with, deal with indies. He never sold a lot of records. He had exactly one hit single that came out in 1972, <laughs> Walk on the Wild Side. And when you look at how many albums that he has put out, he just put out that collaboration with Metallica, which I, you know I don't want to get into the you know, the ins and outs of whether that's valid or not. That's not really well, germane to the conversation, but the fact of the matter is, I mean, the guy just put out a new album like a week ago. Um, it's, it's just,
0: it's, it's mind boggling. I mean, nobody's ever going to do that again. Oh yeah. There's no way he's, he's a complete original.
1: And it makes and, me wonder yes. how, because he's been on multiple major labels. So it's not like he was just buddies with somebody that owned a label. <laughs> he, he, he keeps getting major label deals and, and doing whatever the hell he wants. It's, it's, just, it's, a, it's the kind of career that a true artist dreams of.
0: I just... Well, you know what? I would say that, I don't know if you can call him a cult artist, but uh, someone who you could compare his career to, oddly enough, would be Prince. I mean, he can do whatever he wants. He always gets a major label when uh-huh. he wants one. And he's got as much artistic freedom as as anyone has with Lou Reed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the big difference being, though, that uh, Prince has got a truckload
0: of top 40 and top 10 hits. That's true. So how does Lou Reed pull all that off You know, without the same rights as Prince— but absolutely none of the top 40 hits none of
1: the sales that's what i'm saying it's just when you really look at his career that way it is remarkable it is truly original we never have, we never saw it before and we're never going to see it again and he is the guy i mean he stands he stands alone and he's done it all not even being a nice guy i mean everybody everybody who meets him says that he's just very prickly and you know, not that he's an asshole, but he's just he—he he is what he is. He wants what he wants, and gives no quarter to anybody else's
0: opinion. That, that is again just like Prince. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, I did not know they had such a similar career. So it's
1: it's it's just, uh, and to try to even talk about the phases of his career. Uh, I mean, really, he deserves his own show, which we're not going to do that to people. But, you know, so I won't even, I guess I won't even bother. I guess I will just say that my favorite kind of Lou Reed is when he's got a really rocking band behind him. Uh, Some of my favorite albums are New York, Mm -hmm. which was like that. Uh, In fact, that's got my all-time favorite Lou Reed song, Straw Man, uh, on it. Uh, An album that he just put out within the last 10 years called Ecstasy. I think, is one of his best records. I mean, he was in his 50s when he put that album out, and uh, I thought that it was... He still kicked ass? thought it was amazing. Uh, New Sensations, which is the one that had I Love You, Suzanne on it. It's another great album. Uh, one that people talk about a lot is The Blue Mask, which, curiously, I mean, I like The Blue Mask, but I I don't think it's his best, and a lot of people say that it's his best
0: album. And wasn't that one like... Uh, hard to get on CD for a while. It was, yeah. And was that from a, a label problem, or that's a good question. It was Just big in Japan for that one. I, it was just <laughs> it was one of those things,
1: and it almost makes me wonder if that's why the critics glommed onto it because you mm. couldn't get it.
0: Yeah, because it was out of print oh, for a long time. I'm artistic. I know shit. You know, <laughs> you can you can't get this, but it's really good.
1: He's got another one that came out in 1980 when he turned 40, called Growing Up in Public. That is uh, a really good album. Uh, I, I like I like Lou best when he is marrying accessible melodies with his typical harrowing <laughs> lyrics. <laughs> yes, and uh, I've I've followed him a lot of places. Some places I haven't. What do you
0: think about uh, Metal Machine Music?
1: Yeah, that's one that, I mean, you listen to 30 seconds of it and you've pretty much heard the whole thing.
0: That was obviously something to piss off
1: the record label. It's basically uh, it's a two-record set of feedback. And some people say that it's his greatest artistic statement. Other people say that it was because he owed his label an album. I think he owed his label an album. But that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. He did that. And, and then he
0: released it. Got it. <laughs> they released it,
1: and he got another deal with somebody else. So it's just, it's amazing.
0: Yes, he is truly
1: incomparable. And he's a talented guy. It's not like I'm talking about a no-talent who doesn't deserve it. I guess what I'm saying is that it's rare. But
0: it's you just, have it's, to, you should explain his, uh, if you don't know him, Reed. Uh, what is it would you say sing speak i mean oh yeah, I, didn't even get you, I didn't even get I mean, to- <laughs> that that would be i didn't even get into the fact that he can't sing yeah
1: and i don't just mean that he can't sing like mick jagger can't sing i mean he can't sing
0: yes if you just said hey baby take a walk on the wild side that pretty much could be plagiarism because that <laughs> is pretty much how he sounds <laughs> that actually sounds better than he sounds
1: because I've, I've been talking to some friends on Facebook about this whole Metallica collaboration, and they're not quite sure how they feel about it, and uh, I said that it's going to be harder for Metallica fans to accept
0: because
1: oh, yeah. of hearing his, his speak, sing, croak, which is basically what it is, his monotonous voice over top of Metallica riffs is going to be hard for them to take. It's so funny because I've been listening to him for so long, I just accept it. But you're absolutely right. That's one of the things that somebody coming new to him, (laughs) that's the first thing they're going to notice. They're they're going to be like, what the hell? This guy can't sing.
0: (laughs) Did you hear the uh, Sweet Jane that he did with Metallica? Yes. And did you like it? Uh, It was unmemorable to me, so... I thoroughly enjoyed it and I'm absolutely looking forward cuz I really like Metallica to begin with and I like Lou Reed. So, you know, I'm hoping they got their chocolate and his peanut butter. <laughs> <laughs> well, I listened they were, they were doing some live streaming on
1: uh com. I think it is. Mm. And uh the album, it's 9 songs and it's a 2 CD set. Nice. So and they were doing streaming. I only made it through like Maybe three quarters of the first disc, uh, and I I liked what I heard. But there's a song on there called "Iced Honey" that is extremely accessible, mm. and uh, I think you know could uh, would be a good entry point for people. It's not representative of the album by any means, but at least it does show how they can sound when they're firing on all cylinders. I never thought it was a strange collaboration. It always made perfect sense to me because when I think of Lou Reed. And since my favorite stuff is when he's rocking out with a crack band, when I heard he was playing with Metallica, even though I'm not a huge Metallica fan, I just thought to myself, that makes perfect sense to me and it could really
0: be good. Well, I'm totally jazzed for hearing that. I I, I hope it leads to more albums by them. I think to me that's the problem of when you do a supergroup is if you like it, what are the odds they're ever gonna do it again? Yeah.
1: Maybe they'll do it again with Michael DeBar.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow! I, anybody going to get that one? No. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: all right.
1: So that's that's all I got to say about
0: Lou. So I will cede the floor to you. Uh, I, actually, those are my two. I, I I only had Henry and. Bob Mould.
1: Oh, cool. Well, then I can go on then with uh, with Todd. There you go. And this will, uh, this will be one that you can probably weigh in on because uh, for folks that are not, you know, that don't know me personally, Todd Rundgren is like my all-time favorite artist. So I don't want to turn this into a Todd Rundgren cream fest. I would like it Love to be a bit more legitimate. Uh, and I honestly... As far as the whole longevity versus influence thing, uh, I think that he probably is going to have to fall under longevity because since his music is so indicative of the people who influenced him, I don't really know if it would be fair to say that he has influenced anyone else. I mean, I'm sure that he has, but really the people that have been influenced by Todd are really being influenced by Todd's influences, if you follow what I'm saying. Yeah.
0: I know it's getting a little metaphysical, but. It's like being influenced by mimicry.
1: Yeah. Uh but his uh his first solo album came out in nineteen seventy. He was with the Nas before then, which their first record I think came out in maybe sixty seven. He'd been making albums for a long, long time. You could count his top forty hits on one hand and still have fingers left over. <laughs> Hello It's Me was in seventy two, I saw the light was in seventy two. Uh, can we still be friends was in 78 i guess some people would count we got to get you a woman in 1970 and then other people would say bang the drum all day which came out in 82 but i don't even know if that song made the top 40 when it came out i think people just
0: know it now because they played in stadiums all the time well and if you're in ohio they played at five o'clock yes (laughs) which i was going to going off to you know uh, home from work uh, cranking that up
1: this because. is a novelty song it's the i don't want to work i just want to bang on the drum all day song uh which is that if that's all that you know about todd rongren <laughs> there's so much more than that there's a lot there's <laughs> I mean, a lot more than i like that. the song but yeah <laughs> but he but he so he's a guy that you know his chart success was very concentrated in in one era uh but he is still touring he's got a huge
0: fan base uh, still releasing albums, and and he was driving um, the entire sort of artist online and artist uh, letting the fans make remixes and stuff that people are doing now. He was doing in what, like ninety two? I mean, that's true. The it... individualist was you know something you could download on a computer and remix your own. That was I actually that mean. was actually No World Order.
1: Which well, was, yes.
0: No World Order came out when
1: you were at Blockbuster Music. So I can't remember what year that would be. 94 to 96. Okay, so it was probably 94 cuz I think that came out before The Individualist which was 95. And yeah, there was you could buy a Macintosh version of it. Which it's one of those things that it's it's probably a collector's item even though you can't use it anymore because it's not compatible <laughs> with any software that exists currently. <laughs> But he, yeah, he, he recorded an entire album that was musical fragments, and then he released a proper CD of it that was kind of his best guess of how they fit together, but it was actually meant to be experienced as this computer application where, I mean, it was real, so ahead of its time that people were like, what in the hell is this? Yeah. So there was that. And then there was Patronet, which was his uh, artist direct website, which was... Uh, you know uh, i mean it it was years before Napster yep uh and it was a direct interface between the artist and the fans where he would actually uh release you know like free songs and stuff direct to and you could also subscribe
0: prince, prince did a version of this after him
1: yeah and and you could subscribe yeah. to patron net and it entitled you to go in and listen to so many songs per month. And then I think like every quarter, uh, so every three months you could go in and pick your favorites and they would send you a custom CD of which songs you wanted to have sent to you. I mean, just crazy. Yeah. That's, crazy ahead of your time stuff.
0: Yeah. And now, you know, now artists are, you know, putting out albums where you can, you know, uh, pay what you want to pay or, you know, do something that's even not as revolutionary, you know, ten years later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's twenty years later. I mean, geez, that's amazing.
1: And he was uh, he was he was actually big into videos too, music videos when they were first coming out. Now if you if you go back and look at uh like the video for uh Time Heals which was one of one of the first videos played on MTV. It was it was played somewhere in that first few hours. Yes, and it was one of these things that it was pretty much all done on a desktop computer. And if you look at it now, you'll go, "Yeah, that was done on a desktop computer in 1980." I mean, it looks like shit, but the fact of the matter is, it was you know way ahead of its time.
0: Way ahead.
1: So I mean, I could I could talk at length about he was he. I could talk at length about Todd Rundgren. I don't want to bore everybody, but he definitely counts as a cult artist. I mean, he he grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia, so he was heavily influenced by uh, Philadelphia soul, but then he got into prog rock. Uh, He started dabbling in hip-hop later in his career to some mixed (laughs) success, to say the least. Uh, He's an excellent guitar player. He does a lot of, you know cock rock with with the guitars he's done that stuff uh great ballads uh catchy pop uh he's gone down the synthesizer path done a lot of stuff with just electronic yes. music he did an entire tour uh that was acapella but he was running his voice through a special synthesizer so he could like sing along with a choir of himself and also doing percussion effects uh just it's it's just it's mind boggling
0: well so if a person wants to uh delve into his uh discography where's a where's a jumping on point really good question i would say if
1: you want to hear todd at his most accessible the hermit of mink hollow which came out in 78 that's got can we still be friends on it uh, there's also a couple of tracks toward the end that showcase his guitar playing abilities. So that's probably the best place to start. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Ash, the cat, is making a return appearance to the studio and is playing with my pen. So I'm a little distracted right now. Uh, another one of my favorites of his is uh, the ever popular Tortured Artist Effect. That's the album ob- that actually does have Bang the Drum on it.
0: But I hear that referenced a lot by people that and uh there's a two cd set something anything yes yeah
1: something anything is the one that's got hello it's me on it so but Herman of mink hollow is probably the best place to start i'd say start
0: there and what about his uh his two earlier bands what was it uh utopia and Well, the Naz was the band that that predates his solo career. Utopia is the band that he formed after he started his solo career. Are those uh, good? Are they worth listening to? And if so, what? The Naz was
1: uh, Pennsylvania teenagers forming a British Invasion band.
0: (laughs) That sounds cool.
1: And they've got... um, We've got a song. The, the the big single from the Nas was uh, called uh, "I Can See It in Your Eyes."
0: Hmm.
1: Oh, I'm trying to sing it in my head. Uh, which kind of sounds like uh, my generation era? Who?
0: Hmm.
1: It's a good song. Okay. And then Utopia, actually, when it was started, was his prog rock outlet. And so they were doing you know concept albums about the sun. And, you know, Democratic with the songwriting and stuff like that. And then it kind of evolved into a uh, very commercial guitar pop and guitar rock band. Hmm. And then by its end, it was kind of a straight up pop band where they were still doing the Democratic songwriting thing and they were taking turns singing songs. But it's virtually indistinguishable from the solo stuff he was doing at the time. It's good. Mm-hmm. It's good, but it's it's not like it's markedly different. Is there anyone in either of those bands that people would know? I mean, did, no, no. Yeah. I mean, m- people in Toddland would know them, and when he was in uh, the New Cars, mm-hmm. uh, Chasm Sultan, who was uh, in Utopia, he came out and sang the Ben Orr songs on that tour. Uh, okay, uh, a guy named Prairie Prince he's kind of in the orbit there. He was the drummer for the Tubes. His name is Prairie Prince. <laughs> really? I don't think really. Okay, good. But that's what he calls himself. <laughs> and if he had a dog, it would be Prairie Dog. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, that's that's kind of the big, you know, the big ones that I wanted to talk about. I mean, if, if we have time, we can get into television a little bit. Ooh, I like television. Television was um, a band, uh, they're considered punk, they're American punk. They were part of the CBGB movement from New York City, which the CBGB movement is really strange because <laughs> it's all called CBGB punk and none of it sounds alike. I mean, you had Blondie, the Ramones, the Talking Heads, and television. Those were kind of the big four that came out of there. Yeah. Was, was Patty Smith in there? I, I always hear those four. Okay. And th- they sound nothing alike. No, not at all. Uh, I mean, Blondie was more harder edged than what we associate Blondie with, but obviously, you know. And she, so was uh,
0: Talking Heads. Yeah.
1: Talking Heads, though, was like white guy funk. Uh, Blondie became more disco influenced. The Ramones were always third, three chord rock. And then you had television, which they're really kind of hard to describe. They were known for their twin guitar attack.
0: Yes, kind of like uh wow. Well, I, I guess I I don't really know how to describe them. Um, hmm. Angular rock. Yeah, <laughs> and people talk a lot about
1: you know, Tom Verlaine, who was the the guitar one of the guitar players in that group and one of the chief songwriters. Uh, Who also played with Lou Reed to tie it in. His uh, his playing is usually uh, described as being cool and precise. And you know when people yeah. say cool, they're talking about like icy cool, you know. Uh, and their debut album was Marquee Moon, which came out in '77, and that's one of those landmark albums that is always cited time and time again as one of the. Greatest albums ever released, one of the greatest albums of the punk movement, and probably, to me, one of the few albums that actually stands up to, to that kind of hype. The title song, Marquee Moon, is simply one of the greatest songs ever written. It's about 10 minutes wow. long. Uh, it's about 10 minutes long, and it goes by like it's a three-minute song. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Uh, so it's, it's one of those things that, you once you start listening to it, you just get so caught up in its, in its groove and its musicality. And yes, there's a lot of solos, but it's just, you, you just, you get lost in it. And the next thing you know, it's over and you're like, oh, doggone it. I want to hear some more. And it was 10 minutes. So, and, and Tom Verlaine went on to a, uh, a pretty big, well, in relative terms, solo career. And uh, he's got some solo albums that uh, that sound like the best of television. That was a weird thing about television because I love most of the songs on the first album, and then their second album, Adventure. I
0: can't really get into that much. Yeah, I don't really remember Adventure. I remember Marquee Moon. And I have, as we talk about it, I haven't listened to it in a while, and I'm like, oh, I gotta go listen to that again because that, that is a that is a that is a an album that lives up to its hype is a great way to put it. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's. Really Although uh, they made me, uh, reminded me of television. There was something when we were talking about debut albums that I was going to mention and I forgot about was uh, The Hold Steady. hmm And when I saw The Hold Steady, the first time I saw them, they were a unsigned band playing on G4s, uh, the station G4s, attack of the show Mm -hmm. back when they just turned that into a kind of more pop culture-esque thing. And they came on there and they were dressed like the Ramones in like all leather. And they sounded like Paul Westberg fronting television. (laughs) And I never heard anything about them until like three or four years later when I, I bought a, something at a, uh, Amazon or uh, borders that was, uh, touting them and had songs from the third album, which was... uh,
1: Boys and Girls in America?
0: Yes, Boys and Girls in America. And I I went to uh, tell you about this, and you already knew who they were. But I I don't hear in the three albums, in any of those albums, that Westerberg meets television. So I was curious if you... uh, what would you what would you call the Hold Steady? If, what would you describe them as?
1: Well, it's interesting because uh, they started out as, as very punky, the Hold Steady did. And uh, Boys and Girls in America, I got first. And I liked it so much that I went back and I bought their second album. I didn't get their first one because I heard their first one was sort of like, uh, what, Sorry Ma, Forgot to Take Out the Trash by The oh. Replacements, where it sounds mm-hmm. nothing like the rest of their stuff. Mm. So... <clears throat> I wouldn't say that in a bad way though so i i got their second album and it was a lot less accessible than boys and girls in america i mean boys yeah. and girls in america uh has a lot of classic rock influence on it i mean i hear uh you know, people are gonna shudder when i say this but uh i hear springsteen on there uh i hear the eagles i hear guns and roses You can quite literally hear Dave Perner from Soul Asylum because he sings one of the songs on "Boys and Girls in America." I knew that. Um, So yeah, I I never would have picked up a television influence from the
0: output that I've heard. Yeah, Uh, uh, and I think think
1: the singer sings like Tommy
0: Two Tone. Hmm. Okay, I could see that. I just when they were on the they were promoting a uh, a self released EP. That I I remember trying to find uh, at the time, and I couldn't figure it out, so I just sort of gave up on it. But I would love to have, to hear what that EP sounded like, because there's 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 just a slight gap between that first album and what I saw in G4. That I would I'd love to see, you know, because they weren't quite as you know, I think they had maybe two guitars, or they just had a kind of very Angular sound with the yeah. guitars that they, that they, I would say maybe uh, I was going to say modernized, but that's not the word. I was made it more commercial. They were slightly more commercial in that in that first album, and I, I, I listened to it just recently, and I was like, wow, that that is is. You know, I I remember hearing it, and it's really quite good.
1: Well, it's interesting you say that because. I was trying to think of bands that might have been influenced by television because I I really can't think. I mean, there might be some bands that academically think they were influenced by television, but there's really no bands out there that sound like them. And so, really, the whole cult artist aspect probably comes from how well remembered that first album is, Um, even though the second album was not really very well thought of. And then it took like another 15 years for the third album to come out. So there's that, and then the fact that Verlaine went on to a very prolific solo career, but was still kind of under the radar. And I also, again, I don't know that he influenced a lot of people, but it's the fact that he does have a small but loyal following and he's you know he's still recording and he just put out his most recent albums he did the guns and or the guns and roses thing and released two albums on the same day Uh, and he just did that because it worked so
0: well for guns and roses he
1: just did that within like the last five years i think so i mean he's he's still actively recording and you know marquee moon came out in 77 so he's he's still
0: at it very cool yeah so check out marquee moon it's worth it
1: and I'm sure there's other cult artists that we could talk about. So if if you want to play gotcha with us and <laughs> tell us about your favorite cult artist or somebody that we just had to include in this conversation and didn't, <laughs> what we're probably going to tell you is that they fall into the David Bowie Grateful Dead category where they're really too well-known, too successful, and too popular to too many people to really qualify. <laughs> but if you want to try... Go ahead and post it on our wall on Facebook at Mr. 80s. Shoot us an email at Mr. 80s at rocketmail.com. We're always spelling out Mr. for all of these, and we're spelling 80s, 80s. And uh, go to WordPress, mister 80swordpresscom That's how you can uh, get a hold of us. Any final remarks?
0: Um, Check out Marky Moon. Go buy the new Lou Reed. (laughs) (laughs) and metallic album because i'm sure it's going to be awesome and don't forget to go subscribe to us on itunes comment leave ratings even if it's not a five If it's a four i mean it might be a you'll take a four four and a half (laughs) (laughs) and
1: good night wallace sean wherever you are